Today's reading is from Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who, die, who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. Oof, amen. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I, hey, friends, uh, my name is Matthew. I serve as the pastor of Christ City Church. And uh, just good morning and happy Father's Day to all the dads uh, in the room. I hope that uh, this morning that you experience the Lord's delight over you and that you experience um, uh, love from your family. And being a dad is a noble and uh, honorable role in the life of a family, and from one dad to another, my prayer for us is that we would father in a way that makes it easy for our children to know that there's a heavenly father who loves them more than we do. Uh, and I pray that when we get it wrong, uh, when, when we come up short, dads, uh, that God and his mercy would watch over and heal and protect and guide our children in ways that we weren't able to. So I pray that we, even as dads ourselves, um, that we would know that we too have a Heavenly Father who loves us, who takes joy in us and continues to father us, however old and long in this world we are. And so, uh, happy Father's Day and amen to fellow dads in the room. Um, last week we began a sermon series uh, entitled Theology of Place, and we began laying the groundwork for, for what can be a, a bit of a heady topic, but has real world and gritty and grounded application. Last week, I sought to make a biblical case for why places and geographies and addresses and spaces, why they, why they mattered and why they were important. And we, we saw how the scripture uh, begins and ends with geographic reference, how God's redemptive work in the world has geographic residence. In the beginning, God's work had a garden, and in the end, God's work has a city. We looked at the theological implications of Jesus being formed of flesh and bone and having a city. He was Jesus of Nazareth. He was from somewhere, and that somewhere was not a passing detail, but housed spiritual implication. And this morning, I want to expound some of what I began last week, namely that place matters. But I want to look at specific places, namely the built environments, uh, cities, and how they matter. And I want to talk a bit about why they matter and make a case that they matter for the spiritual well-being of those that call cities home. In his book, Encountering God in the City, Professor Randy White, um, one of my professors uh, in graduate school, he notes that places matter to God, whether entire cities or simply a section of town, 
Scripture takes note of places, gives them names, ascribes spiritual lessons to them, calls us to remember them. The drama of people relating to God is anchored in time and space on earth. So whether it's Adam and Eve in a garden, or Jonah in Nineveh, or David in Jerusalem, or Daniel in Babylon, or Jesus in Bethlehem, or Peter on the Sea of Galilee, or John on the island of Patmos, the Bible is keen to identify God's place of working. This isn't stuff of, of Greek mythology where gods engage in warfare on mystical islands or magical mountains. It's real people and real places that intersect, and that has spiritual implications. Place matters because place affects our view of things. It affects our view of, of, of a number of different things, namely of God, of ourselves, and it affects our discipleship. Place affects our view of God. It affects the ways that we see ourselves, and it also affects the ways that we follow Jesus. I actually have a sense that we know this a bit intuitively. We understand that our geography, or that our place, that it actually affects our spirituality. Prior to living in D.C., I served at a church in Memphis, Tennessee. I was the mission pastor, and so part of my role was to lead international mission trips. One organization that we partnered with was in, uh, was in Nicaragua. It was a Nicaraguan organization. It was based just outside of Managua, uh, the organization El Samaritano. It was a multifaceted organization. They were doing amazing work um, addressing education disparities, healthcare disparities, coming alongside rural churches for pastoral training. One of their ministry sites um, was a dump in Nicaragua. It was called La Chureca. And at the time, La Chureca was the largest open-air landfill in all of Central America. It was the home to 1,000 people, people that lived off of the stuff that other people threw away. 50% of the residents there were under the age of 18. Samaritano had a school. When you come into La Chureca, the, the smell and the smoke, it, it just it hits you. The methane gas that rises from the dump and at times spontaneously combusts, just creates fires and smolders in different places. Trash trucks that would come in and dump, people would chase the trucks to get the first dibs on the dumpings. Vultures would circle. Children hanging on the back of garbage trucks. It was, it was tough to take in all at once. During one of the trips, I took the team to a hill that just rose just above the school, and from there you could actually look out over the dump, and I asked them to um, recite a passage of Scripture, Matthew 6. I think that you know it. As we looked, we just said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For many in that moment, some of them couldn't even complete the prayer. And they began to experience the power of geography over spiritual formation and even spiritual deformation. Many of the saints that we met in La Chereca, they displayed to us a faith in Christ for daily bread that still lingers uh, with me today. It displayed a longing for God's kingdom and the coming of God's kingdom that is as solid and robust and pure as I've seen anywhere, and simultaneously the feeling of abandonment and isolation and farness from God was present and palpable among the residents there. I remember that day. I, I, uh, the shirt that I was wearing, I kept it. 
and I put it in a sack and I didn't wash it for years and periodically I would pull it out and I would smell it so that I would remember that geography affects spiritual formation. I still have it. It hangs in my closet. Um, I washed it when we moved to Memphis, from Memphis to D.C., but it still hangs there. And when I see it, it reminds me of the Lord's Prayer and of the Lord's places. In our last series on the Holy Spirit, we spent a bit of time talking about the truth that the Holy Spirit isn't the only spirit that's at work in the world. That there's an enemy, Satan, and Satan's followers, unholy spirits, demons, that are also at work in the world. And in that series, we noted that the world is a contested place. The truth is, that truth is actually carried over into this conversation about place and placemaking. Geography isn't neutral. Just as there's a geography to God's redemptive work, so too is there a geography to the enemy's work. And what that means is that sin affects people, and it also affects places, and it affects geographies. Sin affects systems as well as people. But the thing is, so too does righteousness. Righteousness affects systems as well as people too. Sin isn't just individualistic. When sin entered the world, the tip of sin's spirit pierced the soul of the first humans and pierces the soul of every human since. However, sin didn't stop with humanity. Sin affected relationships. It affected the physical world. It affected creation, which we'll address next week. It affected systems that God intended to be for the flourishing of humanity, but because of sin's taint on them, they can be used for humanity's oppression. Sin affects systems as well as people. However, so too does righteousness. The righteousness of Christ had its first effect on humanity. It is for the salvation of humanity that Christ died and was raised, and yet Christ's sacrifice on the cross had uh, cosmic implications as well. Jesus' resurrection began the ushering in of God's kingdom when in a day soon coming, all that has been broken and lost and deformed and distorted in the fall Humanity, relationships, systems, structures, and even creation, all that was lost gets restored and renewed and remade. The righteousness of Christ lived out in the lives of those who follow Jesus. Well, that has effects on systems and structures and geographies as well. What God invites us into is to participate with him in this work of restoration and redemption. However, we have to be careful of viewing our co-laboring with the Lord as some kind of triumphalism on our part. You see, the coming of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven is God's work. It's done at God's initiative. It's moved forward by God's spirit. We join with God. The kingdom's arrival isn't because of our hard work or effort. It is because of God's. We co-labor with the Lord for his kingdom. We are not the ones who usher in the kingdom. And still our work has efficacy. It has purpose and value, not on our own, but precisely because we are working under the direction, the leadership, and influence of the Holy Spirit. Our work with the Lord in a place is always an approximation and an anticipation of the full arrival of the kingdom of God. It's always an approximation. It will never be fully revealed, but it's always an anticipation of the day when Jesus returns and makes all things right. Our work of justice is an approximation of the full view of justice that will arrive when Jesus returns. Our work of justice is an anticipation of, a a foretaste of, a signpost towards the day when Jesus returns and set all things right and new. Our work of beauty is an approximation of the day when Jesus returns and all things are made beautiful. And the creation of things beautiful in our midst is an anticipation, a herald of those things to come. And our labor in the kingdom and on behalf of the kingdom is needed and necessary because of what it stirs in us and in the hearts of those yet to follow Jesus. 
It is necessary because of what it produces in us and what it produces in the world through the work of the common good. It's an approximation drawing us closer to the full view of the kingdom and what it points towards. A day when Christ returns and all things are made right. Our Holy Spirit-empowered work of justice, of compassion, of truth-telling, of beauty-creating, of mercy-showing, of people-liberating, of gospel-telling is good news for us and for our city. There's, it could be a prior question here, though. All of this talk about anticipations and approximations, uh, you can say, well, what, but, but of what? Like, what is it pointing to? What will it look like when God does restore all things? Where, where are we headed? Where, what's the geography up ahead? And the helpful thing is that Scripture gives us a glimpse as to what that uh, will look like. The Bible actually points us forward. Over the years, um, I, I've done a, a bit of thinking and reading and writing and researching, and, and some of you have, too. Whenever we tackle this topic, I... Uh, I get, I receive your master's thesis and your other writings and journal articles that you've been working on. You guys are an educated bunch. I, some of you should just give this uh, sermon. But, but uh, uh, this series isn't the first time we've broached this topic of, of neighboring or placemaking or caring for the city. But one of the theories of all of the research and everything, one of the theories that have developed over the years as it relates to built geographies and cities is this. And it's profound, so hang on. Get your pencils out. You want to jot this down. Everyone wants to live on Sesame Street. Everybody just wants to live on Sesame Street. Because in some small way, I think, I think Sesame Street actually reflects the city of God, the city that's coming, the, the new Jerusalem, our final urban destination. Sesame Street's urban. It's walkable. It's mixed use. It's also safe and friendly, kid-friendly. cares for the well-being of young people. It's diverse, ethnically and linguistically. It's diverse generationally. It's diverse for those with different abilities and disabilities. <laughs> it's diverse for those with different personalities. You have the obsessive compulsive count. I don't know if you follow the count on Twitter. He has a Twitter account. <laughs> Bet you can't guess what he does. He just counts. Every day he tweets out a new number. That's one more than the day before. You have the angry grouch. He's mad and dirty. But you also have the fun and slightly annoying Elmo. There's a space for everybody on Sesame Street. In the passage that we read in Isaiah 65, the prophets paint a picture of what our urban future will look like. As urban ministry pioneer Ray Bakke notes, God's redemptive history, it begins in a garden, but it ends in a city. And what the prophet Isaiah is intending to communicate is a word of encouragement to the returning urban builders who are on their way back from exile to rebuild a city that they love. What Isaiah communicates are the components that are going into the city that God is building. Verse 17, see, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. 
The city of Jerusalem at this point in the biblical narrative has been laid waste by the ravages of war and of sacking. And there are still residents, remnants left behind from Israel's enemies, and they've made a good go of it, but it's hard remaining in a hollowed-out city. And yet Isaiah says that the city isn't going to be a place of desolation and sorrow, but rather the city will be a delight. And the people that call that place home, they will be a people of joy. And throughout the passage, what is described in the coming city are, uh, are public celebrations and happiness. It says that there will be words like delight and joy. Verse 20 says, never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child and the one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered a curse. The prophet speaking the words of the Lord, he, he, he notes that the city to come, that there's, there's public health there for children and for the aged. He notes that lives won't end prematurely. We won't have to hold prayer vigils and peace walks because the city's young are being gunned down in the streets and the city's elderly are vulnerable. Verse 21, Isaiah says, they will build houses and they'll dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plants and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people, my chosen ones. will long enjoy the work of their hands. In the city to come, there will be housing for everyone. There won't be chronic homelessness. There won't be those that suffer through and struggle through the experiences of homelessness as nearly 7,000 B.C. residents do each year. And in the city to come, there won't be experiences of housing insecurity as uh, so many D.C. residents experience. According to the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, the greater D.C. area of D.C., Northern Virginia, and Maryland, that there is a need to add 350,000 new housing units to fill the current affordable housing gap in the city to come. That won't be an issue, though. There will be food and gainful employment in the city to come. The residents in that new geography will benefit from the work of their hands. They'll be able to eat the bounty and enjoy the produce that their good and honest labor produces. Verse 23, they will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. In the city to come, a child's future will not be dictated by their address. A child's success won't be predicated on their zip code or neighborhood of origin. Before I became a pastor, right after a seminary, I worked in a, for a community development organization that served under-resourced communities in the churches that ministered in those communities. And one of the projects that I worked on was a, a project that worked with churches and neighborhoods that had high concentrations of children of incarcerated parents. And in the course of that work, I learned that several states in the U.S., they actually forecast the number of prison beds that they will need in coming years by analyzing the reading levels of third graders, eight and nine-year-olds. In the city to come, there will be a different reality, one in which children are not doomed. And both, not just the children, but even their descendants that that there's a generational effect of the flourishing of children in the city to come. By the way, not to be heavy-handed here, but one of the chief reasons for us doing a vacation Bible school isn't so that more people will come to Christ City, but rather as both an approximation and an anticipation of Isaiah 65 and it's when it's fully realized. 
I do hope that you'll join us and work with us next week, a week when we have a unique chance to communicate to every child that comes through these doors that they matter, that they're fearfully and wonderfully made, that they have purpose and profound future that's offered through the hope of Jesus Christ. Verse 24, before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food, and they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Isaiah finishes out this passage by noting that the city to come will be absent of violence and filled with the peace of God that turns enemies into family, and what is lifted up is the beauty and the glory of God. And that's the vision of what's ahead, of what's laid out. But we also have to take stock of where we are. We have to see sort of how far off we are from this vision and what it is that God is inviting us into in this place, in this time. How might he want us to co-labor with him in the approximation and anticipation of when Jesus returns? And, and this is necessary, especially when we take stock of theology of place, because Often American Christians, we can take an ahistorical look at geography. We act as though place has had, a little, has had little history to it. As professor and author David Long notes, geography reveals both how race works systematically and not just individualistically. Throughout American history and, and D.C.'s history, the geography and placemaking has been perverted and distorted by racism and patterns of exclusion for some and elevation for others. And what's happened over through our history is that we have coordinated a geographic distribution of place and space that has communicated that some places matter more than others and that some people matter more than others. I don't have time to go through an elongated history, but I do need to touch on a few points along our history in order for us as a church to be faithful to our context, to know what it might mean for us to be faithfully and fully informed followers of Jesus so that we can be salt and light in our city. Let us not be uninformed witnesses of the gospel. There's always been this interdependence in our context between geography and place and economics. During the critical decades of growth in American wealth, most notably following the Second World War, there was a boom in home ownership. This was largely, if not exclusively, due to the Federal Housing Authority, the FHA, which was the loan provider for home mortgages and fueled waves of home-owning Americans. However, because of racist policies that animated the FHA, it could actually be said that FHA fueled the creation of white wealth, leaving African Americans in economic despair. Between 1934 and 1962, the federal government underwrote $120 billion in new housing, and less than 2% went to non-whites. The residual and generational effects of this is that today the median household wealth of whites is 13 to 15 times higher than that of black households, and more than 10 times higher than that of Hispanic households. But it was also during these years that America began to suburbanize, again, fueled by the ability to purchase homes on FHA-backed home loans and the development of the highway system, which is another topic for another day. This isn't theology of transportation, although there may be some that would be like, ooh, that sounds nice. <laughs> you can do a seminar in August about it, I suppose. Simultaneously, other uh, urban areas began to um, disinvest and to be reconstructed in such ways as to isolate communities of color 
and ethnic communities. Neighborhoods began to isolate economically and socially. Large-scale housing projects were developed, like the one that I grew up in, and used to communicate to people again that some places matter more than others. And all of this is antithetical to the gospel of Christ that communicates that all people are image bearers of God. And that there's a, if there's a geography that communicates otherwise, then as followers of Jesus, we work to dismantle that, to communicate, even in the built environment, that God cares about everyone. Isaiah's vision is a call for us to remember that we can build and flourish in a way that anticipates the day when all things are made new. But what about placemaking in our city? Where we live right now, and specifically where we are like at this moment in Ward 6. And there are several ways to approach this topic, but one that I want to touch on that I think intersects our theology, our theology of place and also, also intersects our community and our witness bearing to the inbreaking kingdom of God is the issue of housing, particularly affordable housing in this area. I'm going to get a little wonky. I do want to stay in my lane. I'm a pastor, so I want a pastor. But, but one, of the, the, one of the values that we have at Christ City is that our role as followers of Jesus isn't just to pastor a church, but also to chaplain a neighborhood. And so as we think about that, whether you're a small group leader, whether you're a pastor or an elder, that that's our charge, not just to care for those that are in this room, but to care for those that are outside of this room as well. I'm not a developer. I'm not an economist. I don't even play one on TV. But I do believe that there have been some things afoot in our neighborhood that are potentially hopeful and really hold the possibility of holding out for us the image of the city to come, even as there are some things that are troubling in our midst as it relates to land use and place that contrasts Isaiah's vision. During um, the years that uh, Marion Barry was mayor, one of the things that happened was the rise of the black middle class in DC. One of the things that Mayor Barry did was to raise the wealth of black families in the district. However, what often happened with that was that as incomes grew for DC families, those families then moved to the suburbs, most notably in Prince George's County. And so on the heels of this out-migration of black wealth was a massive in-migration of young, predominantly white professionals into the city, most notably into the neighborhoods of Columbia Heights, Shaw, and Capitol Hill. The years of out-migration and in-migration has supercharged the economic phenomenon of gentrification in DC and is witnessing a rise in overall population here in the district, as well as a rise in the economic waves of the city and the decrease of the percentage of African-Americans in the city and the pushing out of the poor. As new housing and new development has tremored across the city, what has happened is a dislocation and a displacement of the poor and most pointedly, poor black folks. With each wave of new development, what has happened is that the city has promised to provide housing for those that have been displaced and dislocated. However, at each turn, the city has failed to live up to those promises that were made. Just a few examples. In the Navy Yard, these are places I love. I go there. I'm going to go this afternoon for Father's Day, but let us know the place that we're heading to. The Navy Yard, established as a naval outpost, and from its founding, African Americans, slaves, worked there, worked that yard. Many of them were slaves that were leased out by local owners, and some workers began there as slaves but ended their time there as freed men. There were hundreds of small dwellings that began to crop up in the 1800s, and in the alleys 
to house the city's poorest, mostly African-American residents. And all of these places, they didn't have electricity, they didn't have plumbing. And so social reformers who sought to eliminate the crowded and unsanitary housing in that area, they pushed uh, uh, the passage of the Alley Dwelling Elimination Act in uh, 1934, which was a helpful thing. It bulldozed um, the alley housing, and it was replaced with subsidized housing. However, the subsidized housing was for whites only. From the 1960s onward, the area was mostly industrial and underdeveloped until the early 2000s. And the one developer for a city developer, one of the largest developers in the world, actually, they won the bid to redevelop the Navy Yard into a waterfront and entertainment district. And as part of the bid, they were asked to replace all of the 700 units of public housing that was demolished. And so far, of the 700 that were demolished, only 460 units had been built 10 years later. The wharf. Newly developed wharf area. Prior to the wharf's development, DC had actually passed a law, the 2008 Waterfront Development Law, that required 30% of affordable housing for any new development along the DC's waterfront. However, in a last minute bill in 2011, it decreased the affordable housing commitment to the redevelopment. Again, a promise unfulfilled. And the poor neglected. Poplar Point, Berry Farm. In 1862, this area was purchased by the Freedmen's Bureau. It was a, a government agency charged to assist freed slaves. In 1943, after using eminent domain and condemnation proceedings, they took the land from the residents, and then the National Capital Housing Authority built 432, uh, 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 432 public housing project, the Berry Farm Public Housing Project. Berry Farm and Poplar Point, if you've gone by there, they're currently undergoing redevelopment again. And the developer has proposed building 700 residential units, 10% of them, 70 for affordable housing, 432 to 70. Now the last piece I want to share with you is much closer to home. It's a tract of land just a few blocks from where we are right now. It's called Reservation 13. Reservation 13 is also called the Hill East District Waterfront. It's at the end of my block where I live. It's one of the 10 largest sites in DC. It's 67 acres and it sits just above uh, the Stadium Armory Metro stop. Recently, um, DC Gin was closed and, and our church has had a long history at DC Gin for a number of years, even before our church's founding. We were working with families that were experiencing homelessness in that shelter. That uh, DC Gin was located on that track. Much of Reser Reservation 13 is yet to be bid out for development, though a portion of it is being developed. Right now, 344 units, with 104 going to affordable housing. And given the size of Reservation 13 and the adjoining tracts of land with RFK Stadium and uh, under undeveloped land around the DC jail, this could actually end up being a billion dollar redevelopment and could substantially move the needle in providing affordable housing for the poor and those that have been shut out of the economic growth of the city. A city that these residents have grown up in and lived in their entire lives. Over the past several months, Justin and I, along with um, Christ City staff and elders, we've been meeting with other churches in Ward 6 and learning more about the hopes and dreams and what it might mean for us to, as much as we're able, to continue to point forward to a vision of Isaiah 65. How can we advocate for just developments on Reservation 13 as an act of Christ-informed and kingdom-informed neighbor love?
not looking to stifle the financial growth of the city, but it can't be done on the backs of poor black folks. This isn't the vision of Isaiah 65 or Revelation 21 for that matter. And there's still a lot that we're learning and things we want to be sensitive to. But we long for a city where new residents and native Washingtonians can live together and call this city home and reap the shared benefits of the city's economic revival as it moves forward. And so we want to participate as a gospel people in the approximation and the anticipation of the city of God that is on the horizons as a form of witness to an unbelieving world. And we want to participate in that by sharing the gospel with those around us, by hosting vacation Bible schools with, so kiddos can know that they matter. And we want to participate in that by working with foster families and adoptive families. And we want to participate in the kingdom by advocating for the poor and marginalized when we have opportunity to do so. So some of you may be asking, so what are you, am I supposed to contact somebody? What do I got to do? I'm ready. I'm ready. I know you guys are an activistic bunch. I just want to say hold your horses for a minute. A few things, a few next steps for us, collectively. Here's what I want us to do. I'm just going to walk through this real quick. I want us to keep our eye on the vision. I want us to listen and learn. I want us to lament, to engage collaboratively, and to pray faithfully. First, I want us to keep our eyes on the vision. This vision is not one that is born in our hearts or in some notion of what it means to do good for people. That is not who we are as Jesus' people. It is rooted in the God of the Bible. It is rooted in his idea, in his vision of the inbreaking kingdom that was ushered forward by Christ on the cross and in the resurrection. Keep your eye on the vision, church. We're to be a people following the Spirit and led by God's word. So let Isaiah 64 always be before you. See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. Former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem. I will create D.C. to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over D.C. and take delight in its people. Just as Jerusalem was to be a delight, so too is our city to be a delight. And its people, all its people, a joy. So keep your eyes on the, on the vision, friends. And listen and learn. Listen to those who've been in the city longer to you. The, the, the information that I just shared, I, I didn't just come out of the womb knowing that. I, I know. I mean, I got some skills, but that's not it. I, I listened to... Others that have grown up in the city. I listen to other organizations, other churches that are in this community, like Mount Moriah Baptist Church, like Shiloh Baptist Church, the Washington Interfaith Network that shared with me some of their research on this. Listen to those that, that have been here, that have been here longer than you, and not by years, but by generations. Learn the story of D.C., one of the great costs of gentrification and redevelopment is the erasure of communities and histories that occur through transition and displacement. And let us, people of God, be repairers of that breach and keepers of those stories of God's long work in this place. I mentioned last week, Kate Denson's tours. 
If you missed the last one, I bet if you email her and get some friends together, she'll do another one for you. Email her at katedenson at gmail.com. I don't know what her email is. I can't. I'm just making stuff up. My man. My man. Let us lament. Grief and mourning are Christian activities. They're spiritually formative activities that cue us in to the work of God. They rightly shape our soul. They produce in us a, a sobriety about today, but also stir in us an ache for resurrection and renewal that's found in Christ. Let us lament. And let us engage collaboratively. We will continue to serve alongside those in this city that are working for the common good and for Christ the King. Joining with long-established ministries and organizations and citizens is a way of honoring God's handiwork that was present before Christ City came along. It, it roots us, and it honors the city. Attend an ANC. Pray for your ANC. Attend a school board meeting. Host your neighbors. One of the tools that we've talked about in the past is, is particularly for those of us that are newer to the city, is, is this notion of a gentrification footprint. If you're going to go out and go to restaurants or coffee shops 10 times over the course of the month, then six of those times go to places that are locally owned or that have been in the city longer than 15 years. There's a way to care for the city. And the last thing I want you to do is I want you to, I want you to pray faithfully for this city. Pray faithfully. Pray in place. Prayer walk. It's nice. It doesn't get dark until like 8.30 tonight. Like, just pray your neighborhood. Pray God's blessing. Pray the Psalms. Pray Isaiah's ache over your neighborhood and pray. And Because this isn't our work. It's a work of the Spirit to move this forward. So let us be a people that call out to the God who saves and rescues and restores. Pray faithfully. I just want to conclude with this, with a quote from Bernard of Clairvaux. He was a Benedictine monk a thousand years ago. He says this, There are those who seek knowledge for the sake of knowledge. That's curiosity. There are those who seek knowledge to be known by others. That's vanity. There are those who seek knowledge in order to serve. That's love there's anything that we are called to be as a people of God, it is a people of love in a geography and in a place and in an address. Let us be that people. Let me pray for us.